Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifest Ring Podcast. So it's been a little while. I think it's been, yeah, over a month now since we last released a full episode. Let me just say up front that is that is no fault of Lauren. She's been extremely diligent in completing her pieces. She's kind of queued up on stories just because I've been taking so long in trying to uh, record and get anything out there. So responsibility for, for the delay definitely falls on my shoulders, as per usual. So I think one of the worst things a podcast host can do or a host of any other type can do is jump on air and give a laundry list of reasons as to why they haven't been putting out content. So I'm going to avoid doing that. Suffice to say, I've been a little busy, I've been dealing with some technical issues, and on top of that, frankly, I've been a little bit lazy, so it's been kind of a killer combination as far as putting out any content. Now, moving forward, we should be back to a normal release schedule, fingers crossed on that, moving forward here, trying to get out at least an episode every week, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but yeah, should be back to normal going forward here, again, apologies for the delay. So what we're going to be talking about this episode, it's going to be really headline heavy. We're going to be talking about the reaction, the predictable and laughable reaction from liberals and Democrats. When it comes to the issue of the summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, we have Democrats actually attacking Trump from the right on this issue, which again is not surprising, but it is always interesting to see when their hypocrisy is laid bare like this. And it goes to show that the Democrats and liberals are just as happy to support American hegemony and American imperialism as conservatives are. There's really no difference at the end of the day, and this is further proof of that. So we'll talk about their reaction to the summit. We're also going to talk about the reaction for, from liberals when it comes to this major story in the United States. I'm sure you've all heard about families being separated along the border between Mexico and the U.S. This has really become a hot-button issue. Immigration as a whole has really become a hot-button issue here, especially in the United States. So we'll talk a little bit about that, kind of where this came from, how it's been going on for for decades, and how it has ramped up under the Trump administration, and, and why it's become so big so recently. So we'll discuss that a little bit as well. Final story I'll be covering from headlines is going to concern Puerto Rico. Now, I'm sure you all know that Puerto Rico is still kind of in dire straits after Hurricane Maria. And as capitalists always say, you know, never let a good disaster go to waste. So we'll be talking about the potential future for Puerto Rico. You know, there's a lot we can learn from history when it comes to these type of situations. So we'll talk a little Puerto Rico this episode as well. In the back half of the show, as I said, Lauren is back with another piece. She's going to be talking about Amazon and our dark overlord, Jeff Bezos. So more uplifting stuff, as always, from the Manifesting Podcast. If you have questions, concerns, comments, death threats for Lauren or myself, best place to find us is on Twitter at ManifestPod. We are on other social media platforms as well. And if you want to listen to the show, you should be able to find us on just about every podcast platform at this point. Jumping into headlines, as I said at the top of the show, I want to begin with this summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Now, just discussing the summit itself before we get to the reaction from liberals and Democrats on this issue, you know, a few weeks ago, or I guess it's been over a few weeks, probably about a month, month and a half ago, I did a little piece about the, the peace agreement between the DPRK and South Korea. And my opinion at the time when it came to to that peace agreement is basically how I feel about this summit as well. I think, you know, potential peace in that region is definitely a good thing. 
peace, especially between the DPRK and South Korea after 60 plus years of tensions. That's a good thing. That's a good thing for the Korean people. Now, with the summit here, again, I feel the same way. I feel cautiously optimistic. You know, you even have Trump saying we should get troops out of the region, which is not something I expected from Trump. I mean, does he really mean that? Who's to say? You know, he's he's said a lot of things, has gone a completely different route when it comes to policy. But I think having that conversation about getting troops out of the Korean region, out of out of South Korea, kind of performing these military exercises, that's only a good thing. Now, even before the summit took place, and definitely after, you know, it looks like the DPRK is really holding up their end of the bargain. Even from Western media sources, which, don't get me wrong, are notorious for putting out these really outlandish propaganda stories about the DPRK, about how Kim Jong-un is murdering family members on the daily, even though these same family members somehow end up at, at meetings like weeks later. So even Western media sources are reporting that the DPRK is is shutting down testing facilities, they're starting to thin out whatever stockpile they have of nuclear weapons. So at face value, I think this is a good thing. I mean, stepping away from the brink of disaster and the brink of war, whether that be between the DPRK in South Korea or the DPRK in the United States, that is a good thing. You know, it's it's not so long ago that we saw the result of the Korean War. So we do not need another Korean War. So if we can avoid that, that is a good thing. Now, do I take the Trump administration or even beyond the Trump administration, just United States government at its word that that they're going to hold up their end of the bargain and no longer stoke the flames here? I I doubt it. That's just what we do. We're imperialists here. I hope that we, you know, stop fucking with that region, getting troops out of that region, especially like if that actually happens would be amazing. We shouldn't have troops over there in the first place. So, you know, bringing back the empire a little bit is always a good thing as well. My only concern here is the same concern I had when we were talking about the peace treaty between the DPRK and South Korea. Now, we've learned throughout history that one way to keep the United States out of your country is to have nuclear weapons. You know, it's just a fact. Let's look at history. That is a fact. So without that deterrent there any longer, with the DPRK really following through with with getting rid of all their nuclear weapons, does this now give the United States the impetus to just swoop through and do what they will, do what we do best, and just destroy another part of the world. Now, all that being said, one would assume that such a progressive force like the the Democratic Party in the United States and just liberals as a whole and the, the whole hashtag resistance, they should be kind of on the same page as me, right? They should be happy that we're potentially avoiding a major war because Democrats are so anti-war, right? They should be cheering for this thing. They should be like, all right, we're going to avoid a potential nuclear war. This is a good thing. And their concern should be that the United States isn't going to hold up its end of the bargain because we like to start wars. It's what our entire history is based on. That should be their concern. It's anything but, of course, because Donald Trump has done it and because liberals and Democrats have absolutely no material analysis of fucking anything that happens. They're just a flag in the wind. They have come out and attacked Trump from the right on this issue. Even Democrats in Congress coming out and saying that they'll do whatever they have to do to keep troops in South Korea, to keep these war games going on, to keep this 
this American muscle there in the face of the DPRK just saying we can squash you at any moment. That's what the hashtag resistance is cheerleading when it comes to this issue. So again, there's not a whole lot to say here. I mean, we can talk to death about how how Democrats and liberals are incredible hypocrites. They don't give a shit about anything else that happens around the globe. They care seemingly about social issues, but only for about a week or two at a time. But yeah, when it comes to anything foreign policy, even characters like Bernie Sanders, these so-called socialists, and the most left of the left in the Democratic Party, they don't give a shit about foreign policy. They will support, again, American hegemony and American imperialism just as fervently as, as fucking conservatives will. So nothing new here. It's it's just, you know, it's it's not rare, but it is very telling when we get to see their hypocrisy laid so bare. And we can see much of this hypocrisy and complete lack of material analysis at play when it comes to this issue of families being separated along the border between Mexico and the United States as well. So as I said, especially during the last two to three weeks here, this has become a huge issue. I think everybody is talking about it because so there's two ways to look at this. On the one hand, yes, this has been happening a while. Yes, this started under Democrats. This is a bigger issue than just what's going on with the Trump administration. But I do think it's a good thing that people are seeing how horrific this process is seeing you know just the visual of seeing these these really young kids even babies in some cases just kept in these cages in internment camps essentially that's a shocking visual to see you know this is this harkens back to a lot of 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 terrible history we've seen this before in play so for people to be outraged about it for like you know i'm from portland here to see like people camped out in front of the ice facility that's a good thing you know, it's really easy to be jaded and be like, well, where were you when, you know, this was happening under Obama, when this started under Clinton, et cetera. Just the immigration policy in the United States has always been madness. Where were you then? It's easy to say that, but I think, you know, actual outrage about this issue, whether it came then or now, it's good to see it's necessary. So I'm not going to just completely shun people who are just discovering this story and they're like, God, this is fucking horrific because it is. There's no getting around that. But the issue we run into is because of this lack of material analysis, because people haven't really been invested in this story for long. They see these horrific events taking place. They see families being split up and and recognizing that as a, a terrible tragedy. They're like, well, what can I do about it? And that's where this reaction from liberals and Democrats, again, just falls so short. You know, we have, you know, this is what we need to do about it. We're, we're going to give all this money to these charities and these organizations that are doing what they can to try to reunite families. Well, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to shit on that effort. I think if there's successful cases of that happening, that's a good thing to support. But just funding these charities and these organizations alone, that's not enough. That is not nearly enough. We must look at the root causes of what causes immigration in the first place. What causes this super zero tolerance, like essentially white nationalist, white supremacist, border policy, etc. We have to look at those core issues and solve those problems if you really want to solve this issue. So again, this is a case of liberals and Democrats trying to put a band-aid on what is a gaping wound. And I think the outrage is good. I think the awareness is good, but that is not nearly enough. You know, we need to talk about 
NAFTA. We need to bring up the the North American Free Trade Agreement again, because this is a big reason why we have people coming up from South America and from Mexico, where we had American corporations go set up shop, shop around the globe, specifically in places like Mexico, just destroying the economy there providing jobs at like the lowest rates possible just so capitalists can further exploit labor. And so, yeah, you have this massive immigration where they're leaving this, this hellscape that has been created by neoliberalism. But, you know, that's not something that Democrats want to talk about. That would be too big of an issue to tackle. That would be questioning American dominance around the globe. So the same critiques we can we can level at liberals and Democrats when it comes to the summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, where they don't really give a shit about foreign policy, that same logic applies here to this issue of, of, of our border and our immigration policy without really focusing in on the root causes here. And the root causes are that the United States is a fucking devil, essentially. We're not going to get anywhere. It's, it's great to support organizations that are doing work that they can. It's great to go, you know, camp out in front of ice shelters. That's good stuff. Like direct action, go get it. That's, that's fucking fabulous. But again, without addressing the root causes, we are not going to get anywhere on these issues. And unfortunately, many of these liberals and Democrats, that's not that big of a deal. They are privileged. They can they can check out. Like they can be upset about this issue for a given length of time. They can throw some money at a charity, feel like they've done something, and then move on with their day. They have no skin in the game here. It doesn't actually affect them at the end of the day. So that's why you'll never see movements from from white liberals and white Democrats and corporate Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. You'll never see real movement from these people on issues that matter, and you'll never see them trying to address these root causes because that takes too much work, and at the end of the day, it's not really their asses on the line. So the last thing I'll touch on concerning immigration and immigration policy, at least for this episode, you know, obviously we'll talk about this more in the future, is I think one of the biggest ironies here is the fact that some of the loudest voices, some of the biggest cheerleaders for the zero tolerance policy, for this ramp up in deportations, the biggest cheerleaders are often older boomers who are living off of social security, or at least that makes up a large part of their income at this point. You know, what they seem not to understand here, the glaring oversight, is the fact that these quote unquote illegal immigrants are coming here to work. And when they work, they're being taxed. Those taxes feed into something like Social Security. Now, these illegal immigrants don't actually get to reap those benefits. They don't get Social Security, but they're still paying into it. So all that money is going to like these older boomers who are now cheerleading for the deportation of a group of people who are funding their way of life. So I'm sure you can see the irony there. You know, and if you listen to any conservative politician for the last God knows how long, Social Security is always on the chopping block. You know, there's never enough money for it. So to take out a large chunk of that money, these people are just going to end up reaping what they sow at the end of the day. You know, much like how these people voted for Trump, how that has not worked out for them at all. It's going to be the same story here if you're cutting out much of the funding that's going to support these systems that these people depend on. So. That is all I'll talk about on, on immigration policy for now. Again, going forward, this is something that will obviously come up again. Moving on to my last story for headlines, I just want to speak really briefly here about Puerto Rico. I just want to bring this up because I know many of you are, are keyed in on this story, but Puerto Rico is something that's kind of off neglected when it comes to discourse in the United States, even amongst leftists. 
So keep an eye on Puerto Rico here because we're going to see history really repeat itself, I believe. So as you know, Hurricane Maria came through, really decimated the region. We have ports that are still clogged. We have resources that are extremely slow in getting to where they need to go. The recovery effort there and the funding for the recovery effort or lack thereof has been just just nauseating from the U.S. government. And I think a lot of that is very intentional. Now, um, I just you know, I don't always agree with Naomi Klein, obviously. We have our differences. But I just did read uh, Battle for Paradise, and I thought, for the most part, it's a pretty good piece. And I think, um, I think she was effective in this as she was with writing The Shock Doctrine. If you're not familiar with that work, she was writing about Chile and kind of the absolute horrors that came about when Milton Friedman was able to go down there implement his his economic policies we had pinochet in power down in chile and it just absolutely wreaked havoc on the the poor people in that country resulting in just thousands and thousands of death and mayhem we are going to see potentially a similar story in puerto rico here because as i said at the top of the show capitalists will never let a good disaster go to waste now puerto rico is an interesting case because there has been a lot of outcry about the relief effort or lack thereof for good reason And part of that is because Puerto Rico is obviously an island. So they have these major ports where supplies come in. Supplies are then distributed through the rest of the island to the more rural parts of the island from the ports. Now, with a disaster hitting where you have roads that are completely still shut down, you know, there's just it's an infrastructure nightmare right now because of of the hurricane. So that's a huge part of it. If supplies for the relief effort aren't actually getting out to the citizens in the more rural parts of the island, then the citizens are going to kind of have to come to the supplies, right? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of Puerto Ricans coming to these port cities, coming to these more central locations where there are, you know, where there is food, where there is water, where there's power and electricity. And, you know, you're kind of left in a situation if you're a Puerto Rican there, like, well, I can stay at my home where I've lived for, you know, God knows how long, but I have no resources to survive, or I can kind of flee and go to where where the resources are. It's not much of an option at all. So what this does is it's interesting here because when you have that many Puerto Ricans kind of fleeing to these central locations, this opens up those those previous locations where Puerto Ricans were living. And now during this rebuilding effort where we've already seen some really shady no-bid contracts go out, you're going to have American corporations and corporations from around the globe coming in and just buying up that land that is now vacant. You know, this is where people used to live, obviously. They had to flee due to a disaster, due to a complete, you know, fuck up as far as getting supplies to them. So they've they've fled. Now these corporations come through. It's kind of this randy and wet dream where all these corporations buy up this land, build on it, create this exploitive tourist location. You know, we've seen, again, like looking at the the history from Chile and other parts of of the world, you know, when you have these these Randian fucking free market types come into a country and make it their playground, as we saw with Milton Friedman, the results are disastrous for the, the poorest of the poor people here. So Puerto Rico, it's, you know, uh, again, referencing Klein's book here, she, she kind of lays out that there's two paths. The path that we're probably looking at is the one that I just laid out for you. We've seen this throughout history. You know, even the government there is already being subservient to these capitalists who want to come through and rebuild everything. Again, turn it into this exploitive tourist location. And this is what happens with austerity measures. You know, like during my interview with Jay Fouad Paul, we talked about this a little bit. When you have austerity measures put in place, it puts people in this position of they're like, you know, they don't know how to fight back anymore. If you're a Puerto Rican person and you're poor 
and your options are A, stay at home with no resources, no water, no food, no electricity, or B, have this really exploitive capitalist corporation come through, you know, build things like for pennies on the dollar, obviously, they're not putting a lot of money into infrastructure or shit like that, but at least you're going to have power, food, and water. You know, yes, they're going to be exploiting you, your labor, et cetera, the island, your history, your heritage, but you get to eat. That's kind of the, the option that's going to be put on the table for these Puerto Rican people. You know, austerity measures always ask the poorest of the poor to tighten their belts. They squeeze every dime they can out of these people. They're always the ones who have to sacrifice as opposed to capitalists, you know, cutting their profits slightly, which would, which would fix the issue as well. So, you know, looking at Puerto Rico, you know, there is hope that potentially it goes the other way where we have these community-based solutions where we have normal Puerto Ricans coming together, creating their own like energy grids, growing their own food, etc. I think that's you know, my only my only critique of that future and why I don't think that's actually going to happen comes from a communist perspective. Without a revolutionary ideology or a revolutionary party down there, I just don't see that effort being strong enough to really outweigh these these vulture capitalists who are going to come through and just decimate this island and turn it into their own piggy bank. So keep your eyes on Puerto Rico because I think, unfortunately, you know they've already had kind of a bleak history there. I think it's just going to get worse. So on that somber note, I will wrap up my portion of headlines here. Again, do stay tuned because Lauren is coming on with a piece about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. And Amazon is such an interesting story because it's almost, it reminds me of, of right after Trump got elected in 2016, where it just seemed like every day there was a story that was worse than the last. So these really terrible things just kind of get lost in the shuffle. One becomes overwhelmed with all these stories about what Amazon is doing. So I think Lauren's done a really good job of, of really picking up on some of the major stories, things that were swept under the rug a little bit. So a really interesting piece from her coming up as well. So that being said, unfortunately, there will be no segment on the Russian Revolution this week, which I know makes like zero sense. I was away for a month, so I've had more than enough time to put something together. Just honestly haven't been in the best headspace for reading and absorbing and um, taking in that type of theory and history and then producing something that's listenable. I have been lately reading a bunch again on it, so next week we'll definitely pick up where we left off. We left off kind of with Lenin's concept of the party, and that's something I want to talk about next week as well because... I want to talk about Lenin's concept of the party, how that looked throughout the the history of the Soviet Union, and how that compares to Maoism, because another thing that I've been doing in my time off, unfortunately, is arguing with with Marxist-Leninists online about the concept of a party and, and defending Maoism and shit like that. So I know that's generally a fruitless effort getting into these arguments online in leftist spaces, but I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Again, Lenin's concept of the party, how that compares to Maoism, and then we'll keep talking about the Russian Revolution. So without further ado, I'm going to stop flapping my gums. Here is Lauren with her piece on Amazon. So this week, I wanted to focus on the corporate hydra that is Amazon. I'm sure that anyone listening to this already knows that Amazon is bad. Amazon is monstrous. I'm pretty sure that if you gaze long into an abyss, Amazon is what gazes into you. But there have been a series of disturbing news stories about them lately that I just can't stop thinking about. Uh, It started when Seattle attempted to pass a bill that would tax corporations a small fee per employee for every hour worked. After three years, it would turn into a pretty straightforward and still minor payroll tax. This would only apply to companies that make more than $20 million a year in revenue, and predictably, none of these companies were happy about it. 
Amazon, however, was the most petulantly vocal opponent, threatening to halt plans for construction on the two building projects they have planned in Seattle if the bill went through. Uh, the mayor, fearful of losing any job source and thinking not at all of her own career, I'm sure, forced an amendment of the bill, one that charges these hugely successful companies far less. Now, the reason for this bill is that the city was trying to raise money to build affordable housing and fund programs to help people experiencing homelessness. It's something they desperately need, despite being only the 18th largest city in the U.S., Seattle, Seattle has the third largest homeless population in the country. A lot of major corporations operate in Seattle, might have something to do with Washington's willingness to suck big business dick. There's no income tax, no capital gains tax, and no corporate income tax. When these businesses move in, housing prices go up, cost of living goes up, and wages usually stay around the same. Um, and more and more people are driven out into the streets. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but it's definitely a contributing factor. This bill was the city's feeble attempt to force companies to help prop up a crumbling infrastructure, one that they themselves helped erode. But the local government was held hostage by this threat of lost jobs. Amazon is a massive employer, but a hellish one. The easiest job to get at Amazon, most of their employment opportunities are in their fulfillment centers. Depending on their jobs, warehouse employees end up walking miles every day on concrete floors, forced to keep up a grueling, unsustainable pace. Over and over again, workers report a culture of fear that if they slow down even a little bit, they'll lose these jobs that they so need. A journalist who went undercover into Amazon UK warehouse reported that some workers there were peeing in bottles, afraid that if they took the time to walk to the bathroom, they'd be fired. And despite the fact that Amazon usually pays more than the pittance our government deems sufficient for minimum wage, they still don't pay that much. Bernie Sanders just called out Amazon's infamously mercenary CEO saying, and I quote, Bezos makes more in 10 seconds than the median Amazon employee makes in a year, $28,466, end quote. His workers are on food stamps, while Jeff Bezos funds his dream of personal space travel like some sort of steampunk robber baron. Just this weekend, he announced his ideas for his private space flight company, Blue Origin, which include using other planets for heavy industry. Nothing is sacred to this man, not even the moon. And despite all of this, most Americans really like Amazon, or they're at least not concerned enough to give up the moderate discounts and mild convenience Amazon offers. But the machine is coming for them, too. Approximately 11% of Americans own an Amazon Alexa device, which doesn't actually sound like a lot, but it's millions of people. And these smart speakers can do just about anything, including record your conversations without your knowledge and send them to people in your contacts. That's exactly what happened to a woman in Portland a couple weeks ago. Um, apparently the device heard something that caused it to wake up, something else that caused it to start recording, and then something else that caused it to send the recordings to one of the owner's employees. Uh, these devices have sensitive microphones that can pick up commands even from a distance or in noisy rooms, but Amazon was still very quick to point out that it was an unlikely string of events and that they're working on it. Um, not to get like two ten foil hat on you, but to me this story is just an example of the unexplored potential for disaster with these devices. For a country that's as paranoid about Russian hackers as we are, we are extraordinarily unconcerned about the potential surveillance devices in our own homes. Um, much more alarming, however, is Amazon's plans for surveillance on a larger scale. In 2016, they unveiled their facial recognition program, the creatively named Recognition. It's spelled with a K, so awesome. They haven't been hiding it, but they certainly haven't been devoting much of their enormous advertising budget towards it. 
And recently, the ACLU obtained documents proving that Amazon has been offering this service to body camera manufacturers and police departments all over the country. The Orlando PD and Washington County Sheriff's Office, two early subscribers, as well as Amazon, have been quick to issue statements that they are complying with the law. A cold comfort since technology is outpacing the law. This is terrifying for so many reasons. First of all, every person in this country has a reasonable right to privacy, and that is violated when they are surveilled without their consent, although that's nothing new with our government. Secondly, the potential for this technology to be abused is guaranteed if you give it to the pigs. And I do mean give. Washington County apparently only pays like 6 to $12 a month for this service. Um, they can use it to go after protesters, as this administration has already proven it is willing to do, to target undocumented immigrants, to target what the FBI calls black identity extremists. That's their phrase for people fighting for their basic human rights. Uh, most disturbing of all, however, is the inevitable error rate. All facial recognition programs have a pronounced gender and racial bias, misidentifying women and people of color at a much higher rate than white men. To combat this, the government created a program, the Facial Recognition Vendor Test. Companies submit their algorithm, it is run through a series of controlled tests, and then the bias rate is published in a report. Companies can then use this data to work on correcting their algorithm until the bias rate is reduced. Amazon has not used this test. They have been peddling their undoubtedly racist program to the very agencies who violently target people of color. This is unthinkable, and yet it's happening. Uh, civil liberties groups, including the ACLU, have sent a letter to Bezos demanding that Amazon stop selling this program to the government. Two congressmen have sent a letter of their own ordering Amazon to answer for the bias in their technology. But I, I don't have much hope. I don't expect integrity from businesses, but I do expect a base level of responsibility, and Amazon has demonstrated time and time again they're above any responsibility for their workers, for the communities they feed on, for Americans as a whole, even for the world. Uh, Morgan Stanley just published a research note on the effect Amazon's global expansion will have on emerging markets. It could, and probably will, as they put it, disrupt entire economies. And who will stop them? Who dares impose restrictions on the everything store? It is too vast to be governed, too catastrophically wealthy to be brought to heel by legislation. Even if we were to somehow topple the giant, there are others who would take its place instantly. I, I have no short-term solution. Nothing small will work. I merely offer another reason to revolt. So since I recorded this piece a little while ago, I just wanted to add a brief update. Um, I started out talking about the tax passed by Seattle, colloquially known as the Amazon tax. After it was passed, some of the businesses that would have been affected by it, including Amazon and Starbucks, funded a campaign that they called No Tax on Jobs, an attempt to collect enough signatures to put a repeal on the November ballot. Um, the mayor of Seattle and the council members didn't leave them hanging. They voted 7-2 to, to repeal the tax less than a month after it was voted in. Amazon's Vice President Drew Herdner released a statement saying that this was, quote, the right decision for the region's economic prosperity and added that we are deeply committed to being part of the solution. In other words, they've got us by the nuts and they know it. His beneficence, Jeff Bezos decides when and how and who he will help, and the only acceptable response is plebeian gratitude. And to be clear, this is absolutely not about the money. This tax would have cost Amazon around $12 million a year, chump change compared to the estimated $1 billion they are reported to have spent acquiring PillPack. 
as of last quarter, they had around $25 billion in cash, and they reported almost $180 billion in sales last year. This was never about the money. It was about squashing any kind of legislation that holds them accountable for the society in which they have made such riches, lest a precedent be set. So they do what corporations like them always do. They act as though any extra cost would have to be paid by the employees or the customers. They shrug their shoulders, their hands are tied. If business expenses go up, they will have no choice but to lay people off or to raise prices. This is, of course, total horseshit. Uh, it is a universally accepted untruth that those on top deserve to be there. Apparently, a good idea and $300,000 of your parents' money are qualifications for world domination. So, to most Americans, it is unthinkable that these obscenely wealthy companies should absorb the costs. Uh, but Jeff Bezos didn't build Amazon, he just started it. The labor force built Amazon the way they build everything. But to the victor go the spoils, and Amazon continues to win. So like I said before, I have no answers, only the simultaneously optimistic and cynical suggestion of revolution.